Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The following edition of Bloomberg's Wall Street Week was recorded ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian of Bank of America, Wells Fargo CEO Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Not so new leadership for the Fed, oil from strategic reserves, and the holiday shopping season gets underway. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. It was a shortened holiday trading week in the United States, but that didn't mean we wanted for news, as President Biden finally told us who he wants to be running the Fed. I'm nominating Jerome Powell for a second term as chair of the Federal Reserve. And I'm, non, I'm, nom, I'm nominating Lael Brainerd to take the position as vice chair of the Federal Reserve. And then the president said he wants to help us all out at the gas pump by releasing some petroleum reserves, although initial reaction was probably not exactly what he wanted. And then with the threat of a further Russian invasion of Ukraine described by Richard Haas, of the Council on Foreign Relations. Whether this is simply a show of force in order to muscle Ukraine, to persuade the government there, say not to move closer to the West, or whether this is the prelude to an intervention in which they would take over enormous parts of the country, conceivably even the capital. I don't rule anything out at, at, at this point. And then just before that Thanksgiving holiday, a massive dump of economic data in the United States showing strong spending continued inflation, and overall economic growth, as summarized by Tiffany Wilding of PIMCO. 
we saw a pretty decent reacceleration in economic activity in October. So I think that was confirmed, as you mentioned, by the consumption data. You know, so I think overall the data was was quite good. Uh, raised our own forecast for growth for the fourth quarter. Certainly good news, uh, you know, for for growth moving forward. All of which left the markets with a good deal to chew on this week, and the tech sector really didn't like it very much with because we had this prospect of higher rates coming along. So we thought we'd take this shortened week, this holiday week, to reflect a little more broadly for investors on what the phenomena are that we're facing. And there's no one better to do that than Jillian Tett. She is the editor at Yellarge for the U.S. as well as head of the editorial board at the Financial Times. She's also author of a very important book called Anthrovision. Jillian, it's great to have you back with us. Thank you for joining us. Let's apply some of your anthropology, if you could, as well as your financial acumen to what we saw this week with the appointment, uh, a reappointment of Jay Powell and the appointment of Leo Brainerd as vice chair. And one of the things I'm curious about is one of the biggest issues we have in this country right now is inflation. And yet in the appointment, we didn't hear uh, President Biden say much about that at all. Is the Fed really, should it be that independent from what's going on in the country? Well, the reason you didn't hear President Biden say very much about inflation is because the Federal Reserve right now is in an absolutely nightmarishly difficult position. Um, now, the immediate reason for that is that it has these twin goals of um, low employment and keeping inflation under control as well. But it's very likely that in the coming months, we're going to see inflation spiral out of control while employment still isn't anywhere near what the Fed wants. So there's a big cognitive dissonance there about what on earth the Federal Reserve is going to do about that. Plus, of course, the fact that you've got asset price inflation that's been going up and up and up and up. And yet somehow the Fed only looks at consumer price inflation, which just doesn't make much sense in terms of how people live their lives. But the other big issue is that the Federal Reserve has sort of convinced us in recent years that it's almost like this sort of high priest of the American economy where it has these seemingly magical powers and this continuity to keep the show on the road, no matter what happens in politics. And, you know, the Fed leaders are there for a lot longer than many other politicians. Um, and it's created this aura of omnipotence. And yet the reality is that if you look at what's happening right now, there's not a lot the Fed can actually do about inflation because it's been driven to a large degree by supply chain problems, by the fact you just had this massive fiscal boost. So the Fed's simultaneously trying to convince us that it has control over inflation, but the reality is it probably doesn't. And on top of that, you have the fact that, you know, the Fed pretends that it's somehow changing the economy and the financial system by moving the price of money by minute degrees or changing um, how it buys bonds. Um, but in reality, what's really driving sentiment is what it says. It's verbal intervention. You might even call it voodoo. So there's a lot of cognitive dissonance in the way that we see the Fed at the moment. And I think for that reason, it's going to have a tough time in the months ahead. Well, and I wonder, Jillian, how much of the Fed's power is really derived from its credibility and the fact that we believe in it, we trust it for one reason or another. Do we really trust an institution to have that much power if they don't listen to us at some general level? And specifically, isn't the appointment process that we just saw this week with President Biden, isn't it that one limited way to have some influence over the Fed. Absolutely. I mean, what's been fascinating this week is you've seen Congress pushing for much greater say on the part of the progressives in terms of who gets appointed. Um, but the reality is that there's a lot of sort of almost mystical magic around the Fed. Um, it's a bit like the priests in medieval Catholic church who spoke Latin and the congregation didn't, but the congregation relied on the priests to provide the blessings. I mean, most people don't actually understand what the Fed's doing and what it says most of the time. 
Um, and of course, it's not elected. Again, that's another point of cognitive dis dissonance because so much of the American self-perception is driven by this concept of democracy and being accountable and the Fed's independent. Um, so I think, you know, there are a lot of questions about the way that the Fed maintains its credibility going forward. The fact that central banks have marble pillars, or granite pillars, um, or hefty buildings um, is no accident. It symbolizes their sense of permanence. But the reality is that, you know, anthropologists know that every society assumes the way that they live at the moment is normal and inevitable and permanent. And that's just not the case. Okay, Jillian, it's always great to have you on Wall Street Week. Thank you so much. That's Jillian Tett of the Financial Times. Thank you. Coming up, it's the holiday season, which means, of course, shopping. We talk retail sales with a true expert, Jerry Storch, longtime head of Toys R Us, about what to expect this year in retail. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It is holiday time, and that means for all of us a time to go out and get those gifts for everyone. And we thought it would be a good time to review where we are on the retail sector right now, particularly with Black Friday in the United States happening right after Thanksgiving, which is the official start for the season. And when it comes to retail, there's no one better to talk to than Jerry Storch. He, of course, is the longtime chairman and CEO of Toys R Us. He is now the CEO of Storch advisors. So, Jerry, thank you so much for being with us. Let's start with the most basic question. We hope we're kind of coming out of the pandemic. Where's retail in recovery from what the pandemic did to it? Look, overall, we're more than back. We're beyond any expectations. Sales are actually at unprecedented levels. This really began last spring, and sales have been accelerating ever since. We've heard all kinds of stories about, oh, slowing down over the summer because of Delta or this or that. The supply chain was scaring people, inflation all the rest. But when you look at a two-year stack in sales, that is, compare sales today to sales two years ago before the pandemic, they've been running up more than 20%. It was 18% in June, 19% in July, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, up 22% versus two years ago in the most recent sales report, which covered October. 22% in two years. And even the normal best of times, that number should be half of that. So sales are actually booming, and I would expect holiday sales to be up double digits versus last year. How even is the recovery? Are there some parts of the retail sector doing better than others? Well, there are certainly winners and losers, as there always are. 
Uh, the winners are those that were well positioned before the pandemic and a few companies that are having kind of a dead cat bounce based on uh, pent up demand. So the biggest winners are Walmart, Target, Home Depot, Lowe's, Amazon, Costco, giant retailers with broad assortments, the ability to navigate this environment, to get those goods on the floor, and consumers have been flocking both to the physical stores for these companies and to their websites. So they continue to grow at tremendous rates. A few other companies have done well during the fall that you might not normally expect strategically to be that well positioned. People like a Macy's or a Dillard's or a Kohl's, you know, companies with strong apparel businesses or apartment stores. But I warn you, the pandemic does not fix a broken strategy. And so some of what you're seeing here is that people were not buying clothing during the pandemic. Now they're coming out and they're buying those goods. Those are not long-term good bets. They have to revolutionize their business model to succeed. That's quite different from the first companies I mentioned who already have a winning business model and are just putting their foot on the accelerator and growing even faster. No discussion of retail will be complete without mentioning Amazon. I'm sorry, I just have to go there. And Amazon stock hasn't done very much this year. And in some ways, I think that's a huge opportunity because they continue to be the class act of the dominant growth segment in retail, which is e-commerce. So, you know, whatever you may think about Amazon one way or the other, or back to the politicians, everyone else trying to muck around their business, they are the only one who can deliver consistently, no matter what happens to everyone else's supply chain. I want to come back to Amazon. Before that, just let me pick up on something you said before. Uh, two, three years ago, I had the impression that department stores, the general department stores, were definitely in decline. Uh, has this changed that at all, or will they remain in decline apart from what you call the dead cat bounce? Well, I think over the long term, they're still in decline. In the short term, they've picked up quite nicely. But keep in mind, they've lost such massive amounts of market share that when you look at the overall retail sales pie, they're actually kind of irrelevant already. The game's almost over. You know, uh, Sears is gone. Uh, Pennies went bankrupt. There's just a shadow of what they used to be. You know, you've got just a few departments, you know, Lerton Taylor and Baker. We just got a few of them left. And those have not been growing significantly. I mentioned that two-year stack in growth that's up more than 20% for retail sales as a whole. The department stores are struggling that same two years to get over 10% growth despite the fact that no one was even buying anything from these stores. They were steeply negative last year. So I don't see this as a long-term win. Uh, they will tell you, oh, look, it proves our strategies are working. You know, uh, Macy's will say, look, look, it's just like what we did in Polaris, Ohio, you know, our model store. It's working everywhere now. Well, I think they're fooling, you know, almost no one but themselves when they say that because that, that isn't going to fix anything. To fix a business like that, you have to change who you are to the consumer. And let's be honest, today's millennials do not want to shop where their grandparents shop. They don't want to go to a department store. There has to be more fundamental change. Uh, Jerry, let's go back to Amazon. As you say, you can't have a talk about retail sales these days without talking about Amazon. And I'd like a, a sense of two market shares. One is e-commerce versus bricks and mortar. What's going on there? Is that continuing, is e-commerce continuing to grow as a part of the pie overall? And secondly, Amazon within the e-commerce section. Yeah, you have to look at, at it again over that two-year basis because what we saw with e-commerce sales, let me start there, is that they mushroomed last year during the pandemic, uh, including key times like the holiday period when, when there, was a, there was still a lot of lockdowns. You remember that, that second wave that came last, uh, last holiday. So people were forced online. And you saw essentially a couple of years of growth in, in, uh, in that one year. 
And then, then people say, oh, look, it's slowing down now. It's not so much up year over year, but it's still up versus that enormous multi-year growth that occurred. So the, that 20% fall off retail, it's 40% for e-commerce. So it's grown 40% in two years. And there's still growth over last year in that 40% number. So it's still growing quite nicely. Thank you very much. It's just the people have a choice now to go to bricks and mortar retailing. And in fact, they're doing that. And so you see traffic counts up in bricks and mortar stores versus last year. And so of course, during this period, bricks and mortar is gaining back some of that sort of uh, you know, unsustainable accelerated growth in e-commerce share that took back took place during the pandemic period. But over any kind of reasonable time frame, like that two-year time frame, uh, bricks and mortar is still losing share overall to e-commerce. And the same thing is true of Amazon. While, it, while certainly some of its competitors have gained, if you look at what some of the competitors are doing, they're, they're utilizing their omni-channel or what I call the all-channel model to drive customers to the stores and do in-store pickup. You know, I do that a lot with groceries at Walmart, which is the main growth, by the way, in Walmart's e-commerce has been grocery pickup in the store. So this hybrid model has been where they're growing, which is smart and right and what they need to do because it's leveraging their stores for a competitive advantage versus, versus, versus Amazon, which does work in something that's perishable like, like groceries. But overall, if you really take a look at the big guys versus Amazon, they're all a fraction of Amazon size. You know, uh, Walmart is somewhere between 10 and 15% of Amazon size online. So it's really Amazon versus Amazon online. Everyone else is, is picking up some pieces and building a, a, a complex all-channel model. Great model, you know, the right model for them. And some of them, the winners I mentioned, are going to do just fine. You know, again, Walmart, Target, you know, uh, uh, Home Depot, Lowe's, Costco. These companies are going to do great, you know, with that, with that hybrid model. But it doesn't mean Amazon is quaking in its boots that they're going to lose out in e-commerce to these folks. As I say, when it comes to retailers, nobody we want to talk to more than Jerry Storch. Thank you so much, Jerry. He is the CEO of Storch Advisors. Coming up, we talk with special contributor Larry Summers about the future of the Fed now that we know who will be leading it. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. The following edition of Bloomberg's Wall Street Week was recorded ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. I'm nominating Jerome Powell for second term as chair of the Federal Reserve. And I'm, non I'm, nom I'm nominating Lael Brainerd to take the position as vice chair of the Federal Reserve. At this moment, both of a both enormous potential and enormous uncertainty for our economy, we need stability and independence at the Federal Reserve. Jay has proven the independence that I value in the Federal Chair, in the, in the Fed Chair. One of those who expressed some support for President Biden's decision was Larry Summers, our very own special contributor here on Wall Street Week, former Treasury Secretary, of course, now with Harvard. So, Larry, thanks so much for being back with us. Give us what you took away from this announcement and what was said around the announcement, perhaps even as important as the announcement itself. So I think the president made a good choice. Jay Powell, in the fullness of it all, has done an excellent job at the Fed. Lloyd, Lloyd, Lael Brainerd is an experienced and capable monetary policy uh, operator. I think it's a good team. It's a team that'll have some creative tension in areas like regulation, in areas like the environment. But I think it's a very good team at the helm of the Fed. And I was glad to see the president's uh, choice. I was equally glad to see what the president said in announcing them, what uh, Chairman Powell said, what nominated Vice Chair Brainerd said, 
because they all recognized what has been true for some time, that overheating and inflation are right now the central macroeconomic problems facing the American economy. And there was no good outcome for the American population, for the American middle class that is so dear to President Biden without taking steps to get uh, inflation under control. And I think that the rhetoric you saw from Chairman Powell and Vice Chair Brainerd portends a new era here for the Fed. I think the question the Fed is now managing is not, do we have an overheating problem? Can we uh, bet with team transitory? They know we do have an overheating problem and that they can't place their bet with uh, team transitory. They've got a new problem and it's a very complicated one and I very much hope they'll be very thoughtful uh, about it because there are no easy answers. The new problem is how do you land this economy uh, softly? That got corroborated by the numbers we saw. The PCE deflator was very strong. Even more important, the income and spending numbers were stronger than we expected. The revision of the national accounts revised upwards how much income uh, consumers had. That means it revised upwards how much pent-up savings ready to spend uh, they uh, have. So all the numbers are pointing towards a lot of strength. All the numbers are pointing towards limited capacity. You know, we've been saying for a long time now that vacancies are record highs, quits are uh, record highs. We got another number in that direction. Unemployment insurance claims lowest since 1969. And of course, we've got a lot more people than we did uh, then. So that makes it an even stronger uh, statement. So we're looking at uh, a challenge of slowing an overheating uh, economy. And we know, we know from the research of a number of people that that's a very difficult uh, thing uh, for a central bank uh, to do. It's particularly difficult when, frankly, it's late to the party to recognize uh, the overheating. And when they have only an instrument, a monetary policy, that works quite slowly uh, through the economy uh, with lags of nine months uh, to a year. The Fed very foolishly asserted that it wouldn't uh, ever start raising monetary policy until we were at full employment, which given the lags was much too strong uh, a statement. And they're going to have to figure out how to maneuver within their framework, which when it was put forward, didn't contemplate anything like uh, this moment uh, to provide the necessary gradual restraint. If they overdo it on restraint, uh, the economy could easily tip over, especially given how much euphoria there is built into uh, markets. So it's not going to be an easy uh, set of maneuvers for the Fed. But they now, I think, recognize what they're dealing with in a way that as recently as a couple months ago in Jackson Hole, they did not. Okay, Larry, we're going to ask you to stay with us, if you would, please, because as important as that monetary policy is and the Federal Reserve, there are also issues on the fiscal side, and there's a question whether the Biden administration needs to make something of a mid-course correction on fiscal policy. We're going to ask Larry Summers, our special contributor on Wall Street, coming up. 
That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We've talked about the Fed and monetary policy. Let's turn now to fiscal policy. The Biden administration now, at the end of its first year, must be thinking a little bit about whether there are any mid-course corrections it might make, specifically on the question of inflation that Larry Summers has talked so often about. Larry Summers, our special contributor, has remained with us. So, Larry, what about what the administration could do, put aside the Fed, what the administration could do on the front of inflation? So, look, I think we need to be honest and we need to recognize that the main action— The overwhelming action is with monetary policy, and it's with the overall posture of fiscal policy. The overall posture of fiscal policy has been substantially set, unfortunately set, by the mistakenly large fiscal stimulus that was enacted at uh, the beginning of 2021. The administration's moving towards doing uh, the right things. The SPRO release was probably a constructive uh, step. But as we saw, they released the SPRO, and immediately after the SPRO release, the price of oil actually went up. That's because the release was a little smaller than many people expected. It's because unlike uh, after Libya, the Europeans didn't join in uh, the SPRO release. It's because the whole thing had been widely telegraphed for the last uh, few weeks. So, Probably if this whole SPRO thing had not happened, oil would be a few dollars higher, but we've kind of done it and we are where we, we are where we are. I think the administration should do what it can to encourage uh, oil supply uh, in the United States, but I think it's mostly developments in capital markets, uh, not public policies that are driving where we are on oil. I was just going to say, just to be clear, SPRO is the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for some people who aren't as conversant with this as you are. But you're going to say low-hanging fruit. I was going to ask about other possible regulatory relief, such as tariff relief, for example. So I think the administration does need to find its way to more rapid action on uh, tariffs. I think it's plausible that they could take uh, up to half a percent, maybe even one percent out of the inflation rate over the next 18 months with properly strategic uh, tariff reform, but that's going to require them to adopt a more forward-looking attitude uh, towards trade 
than they have already. I think if they could emphasize buy cheap rather than buy America, that would be uh, constructive as well. I think as they look at their various regulatory agendas, they need to think about which ones are imposing costs on business and uh, be careful. These are all steps that um, I think are uh, significant, um, but they're not ultimately what is going to determine uh, the outcome. And while I've tried to speak to them, I think it's very important not to divert attention from the central issue, which is the management of demand and the recognition of uh, overheating. The truth is that we don't have slack in our labor market today. And we, there isn't room for more demand to employ more people without unsustainable inflation. And that's, I wish it was otherwise. Uh, the people who say that more demand does enormously good things for disadvantaged people are absolutely correct. But you have to do things that are sustainable if you want them to be sustained. And we're in the unsustainable place right now in terms of how hard we're pushing and pressing the economy. Larry, let me ask about one other regulatory initiative, potentially. We've heard President Biden more than once say he wants the FTC to look into the oil companies, whether they're gouging right now, if I can put it that way, because the price of oil going down has not been reflected at the pump. There are reports from Bloomberg and elsewhere that perhaps the administration is thinking about a broader ranging use of antitrust and perhaps other laws and regulations to really go after people that they think are passing along price increases. Does that make sense? Look, uh, we need stricter antitrust enforcement in America. One of the things I'm encouraged by about the Biden administration is that they're going to bring us stricter enforcement of the antitrust law in America. That is a very important uh, thing. Where there are abuses, they should be uh, corrected. If anybody thinks that gouging is an important cause of our current inflation, they are dead wrong. And a, a policy approach to inflation that put some theory of gouging or exploitation or bad corporate behavior at uh, the center of uh, policy would be economic ivermectin. It would be a dangerous and false diagnosis and uh, prescription for a very real and serious problem. I think the administration won't go that way. I certainly hope it will uh, not go that way. And if it does, it will be a very dangerous sign that they are overly responsive to the hard uh, Democratic left, which I have to say I think has been the source of many of their difficulties. Uh, Larry, uh, when we turn back next week to the Build Back Better plan, we'll have Congress back in session. They're going to be negotiating it some more. Some more. You said you don't think unbalance is that bad on the inflation front. You think there are a lot of good things in there. But what could be done to improve it from your point of view? Let me be very clear. If I had to vote up or down on it, I would definitely vote up. Let me be equally clear that I think over time it will make substantial contributions to making American society um, both richer and uh, fairer 
and more sustainable in its environmental impacts. That said, I'd be more comfortable with the uh, with the measure, David, if there wasn't quite as much fiscal stimulus in the first few years. And I think there's an easy way to achieve that. The state and local deduction, uh, the increases in the state and local deduction that were not in the administration's proposal, but were inserted in the House of Representatives are, I believe, uh, misguided. They are retroactive. And the one thing we know is that retroactive tax increases don't have any positive incentive effects. They give relief uh, to people like you and me who are not the people who really need help in our economy. I mean, there is something wrong. There is something deeply wrong with a democratic revenue raising measure that cuts the taxes of people like you and me who are almost certainly in the top 10th of 1% uh, because we've been very lucky and fortunate of uh, the income distribution. And we could make that better by scaling way back uh, the state and local deduction uh, proposal. And in the process of uh, doing that, we would also reduce the inflationary pressure that would come from the bill. So, so Larry, it's clear to me, I think to everyone at this point, that many people have moved in your direction. You were very early on saying we're putting too much money in the fiscal stimulus in the last package. You're going to have inflation. We now have inflation without a doubt. But I wonder if you are that confident that everyone agrees with you that there's going to be overheating that really needs to be addressed right now. Because we do have something. We talked to Paul Krugman. You and I talk about him regularly here. You know him well. I know you respect him. We talked to him this week, and he said, yes, absolutely, there's inflation. Yes, there should be tapering. But we've got two or three factors that make us less concerned about it. Number one is fiscal stimulus is working its way out not necessarily. We're going to be contracting on the fiscal stimulus, given where we were. We've got a COVID out there that's in, undetermined. And in fact, the supply chain thing is getting better. So there are some people who think, yes, there's a problem, but it may solve itself to some extent. Paul's been wishful thinking on this uh, for nine months, and I think he still uh, is. With respect to the fiscal policy, we've still got very substantial levels of spending to come from the fiscal policy we've already done, and we've got new fiscal legislation that'll increase the deficit by $160 billion in the legislation if it's not amended in the Senate. The forecasts, which call for continued reductions of a substantial magnitude in unemployment, even given the super high uh, vacancy rate, so further tightening, already assume all that Paul is saying about uh, the fiscal policy. So I think he's pretty unlikely uh, to turn out to be uh, right in his uh, fiscal policy argument. And excuse me, David, what was the other argument that you cited? Uh, COVID. Oh, look, nobody knows, nobody knows what's going to happen about COVID. What's kind of remarkable about People like Paul and some of the others who have just, I think, been uh, deniers and hopers uh, on this is that if COVID's bad, they think that's a reason for more stimulus because we need to support the economy through COVID. And if COVID's good and goes away, they think that's a reason for more stimulus because we're going to get more supply. And they try to have it. They try to have it every which way. Thank you so much, Larry. Always a treat to have you with us. 
That's Larry Summers of Harvard. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.